Hi, everyone, and welcome to Migs on the Mic, the official Yan podcast. AEGL's Young Alumni Network, or more endearingly called Yan, was created as a resource for recently graduated FMIGS fellows. Our goal is to address topics of interest that are pertinent to those immediately out of fellowship to help them succeed, thrive, and enjoy attending life. I'm Michelle Passas, and I'm the FMIGS Class of 2017 representative. And I'm Tracy Ito. I'm the FMIGS Class of 2018 rep, and Jeff Wu is joining us as our tech support for publishing and hosting and editing. Given the recent racial climate in the United States, Yon, in conjunction with AHEL, has sought to understand experiences with racism and racial inequality in our community in an effort to increase awareness and become better allies. In these next two episodes of MIGS on the Mic, titled Exploring Racism Through the Lens of Black Surgeons, we spoke with some of our Black American colleagues to learn about their personal and professional journeys. If you didn't do well on a test, um, if you made a mistake in the OR, right, you don't want those things viewed through the lens of race. We wanted to hear about the obstacles, detours, and triumphs they may have encountered along the way and how racism has shaped their individual stories. Racism and the things that we have encountered in medicine, you cannot separate from racism and the things we would encounter in the real world. It just it wears a white coat, but it's no different, if not even worse, because you think it should be better. Dr. Bradley shared a quote from Martin Luther King, highlighting that communication is where it all starts. People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they've not communicated with each other. While identifying as allies is important, turning that awareness into action is the next step in making change. Here's an introduction to our interviewees. Hi, my name is Kayla Nixon, and I'm the current second-year FMIGS fellow at Northwestern University. My name is Keith Downing. I'm the Division Chief of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at Good Samaritan Hospital Medical Center in West Islip, New York. I'm also the Program Director of the Fellowship in Immune Invasive Gynecologic Surgery at Good Samaritan Hospital. I'm Linda Bradley. I'm an OBGYN and professor of obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive biology at the Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Conrad Duncan. I am currently head of urogynecology at Sagnus Hospital. A huge thanks to our interviewees for taking their time to share their stories with us. We asked our interviewees to share their first encounters with racism. We found that their experiences with discrimination were overt in some cases, but more often insidious. Dr. Downing recalls the negativity associated with his race as early as preschool. I was in preschool, and, uh, and I distinctly remember uh, essentially being racially harassed by you know, two kids in the class. Uh, they, would, they would try to push us, push us off the swing, call us blackie, you know, a variety of you know, racial names. Dr. Nixon similarly had recalled racism early in her childhood that she feels she hadn't processed until recently. I think the earliest that I remember was probably when I was in the second grade. Me and my brother went to a private elementary school when we first started, like primary school. And we were both really good students. Um, But I remember when my brother was in third grade, he suddenly was getting in trouble all of the time. I remember my parents commenting about his teacher. They didn't tell me until after, like many years down the road, that they were fairly convinced that the teacher was racist. We were three 
of three, I think we were the like two of three African-American kids in the school. It was a small private school, but at least of like a couple of hundred. Um, and so of course, each of us were like the only black student in our class, but it was really out of character that suddenly my brother was always getting in trouble and he was always sort of saying that he wasn't doing anything, but that he didn't feel like he was being believed. I was so young at the time that I didn't really process it fully. We actually ended up leaving that school after that year and going to our local public school. As our interviews continued, we began to understand that challenges came in all shapes and sizes. Subtle things can be just as damaging as Dr. Duncan highlights. My earliest recollections would be moving from an environment where where I was in an all-black environment to an all-white environment. The the shock of that was, as a kid, you know, you, you, you're a kid. You don't necessarily know that that, notice that that's a huge difference because everybody's a kid. Um, but it was the, it's, it was the daily, uh, you know, let's touch his hair. I mean, almost on a daily basis because it felt like Brillo to them. They call it, you know, Brillo hair. It, it was the, 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 the novelty. I was a true novelty for my school and it was literally torture every day. Even things that seem so innocent, such as summer activities evoked negative connotations. In this segment, Dr. Bradley describes the childhood encounter. I remember being at my grandmother's, playing with little white kids in the middle of the day, and it got hot. And like, Grandma, can we go swimming with them? Because they're all going swimming. It was supposedly a private pool. I was smart. I could read a sign. Maybe I was five. And it had white only. I remember seeing that. But my grandmother and grandfather would say, uh, my grandfather was a coal miner, and we were in West Virginia. He would say, get all the grand, was four grandkids. We're going to go to the big city pool, and it was 20 miles away. We'll get ice cream on the way back. You can get as much ice cream as you want. But I just remember seeing that. You know, well, why can't we go with them? We play with them. For, we're there three months in the summer, but every day it was hot. We could never go. These sentiments of not belonging or of, quote, imposter syndrome continued throughout higher training. Dr. Bradley reflects on relationships in college and medical school. There was no deep friendships. So that's how I felt. And to be quite honest, when I went to medical school, it was the same way. Dr. Nixon echoes this sense of not belonging during her training. And there were instances throughout medical school that I recall where um, I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, I encountered more microaggressions or I encountered people that very clearly had not interacted with people of different races or African-American people maybe um, at different instances. And so I think that I struggled to in some degree, to some degree. Um, I know something that a lot of, like a lot of black doctors and medical students struggle with is imposter syndrome, even though I felt like I had this confidence going into the situation. When I got there, I was sort of like, oh, wow, like this is, this is not Xavier anymore. This is the real world. Um, and so just constantly felt like, again, like I mentioned, I had to prove myself or like there were other people that had low expectations of me. Even if I didn't hold them internally, I felt like I had to prove them wrong or um, just overcome their biases against me, quite frankly. In addition to coping with imposter syndrome, Nixon also couldn't believe when she was exposed to overt racism. Not only that, but no one spoke up for her. 
like a second year group of medical students we were rounding with one of the hospitalists and the doctors who in the same day made two comments that were like very in in my in my view at the time offensive and just made me feel very other like one of the comments she made was um, they were interviewing a patient who I think had a history of skin cancer and she mentioned like, oh, you know, of course, with being Scandinavian out in the Minnesota heat as a farmer, of course, you're at high risk for skin cancer. Um, but Kayla could be outside in the heat all day and not have that issue. And it was just so unnecessary. She made another comment within that same time frame that was also just very ignorant. And so as a trainee in that situation, it's like, how do I maintain professionalism, but also let this provider know that's highly inappropriate. I ended up probably just putting it on an evaluation somewhere. I, I wish that I had maybe had more courage to um, to pull her aside and talk to her on a on a personal level and just let her really know how offended I was by the, by that. Racism and the things that we have encountered in medicine, you cannot separate from racism and the things we would encounter in the real world. It just it wears a white coat, but it's no different, if not even worse, because you think it should be better. You know, life's about expectations. If your expectations are that things should be better because we're shielded with this cloak of medicine and everybody around me is great and cool and educated and smart and everybody's going to do the right thing, you actually will be very disappointed because it's no different. While we are focusing on more personal stories, it's really also important to put into context how systemic racism plays a role in shaping those experiences and the lives of Black Americans. Legalization of racism in housing uh, as it applies to the Great Migration from the South to the North. When we had 6 million African Americans moving from the South to the North, my grandfather was actually part of that migration. And, you know, the the government not only sanctioned discrimination, it was, it was written in law, just like in the Constitution, it was originally written in law that people of color were only three quarters, three quarters of a person. It was written in law that you could not lend to black people in these areas. Uh, that the highways would go through the city in these areas and divide it, the black community because that's just the way it's going to be. Hence, the cities look like they look now because of federal law. So in 68, we had this big report about systemic racism, why things were the way they were or why they were then the way they were. And today, things have not gotten any better. We're actually worse off in terms of incarceration, worse off in terms of economic mobility, more people in poverty now than in 68. We're better off in education, but so is everybody. I mean, you know, uh, college is the new high school, but that's just progress for everybody. Uh, we're worse off in terms of home ownership, you know, which is what the number one way to establish generational wealth. We were 40% homeowners then, we're 40% now compared to 70% for, for white families. So, so we're, we're, we've made no progress. Through the interviews, another common theme was the lack of Black representation in, quote-unquote, the pipeline, namely applicants to medical school, residency programs, and presence in national organizations. Residents at the Cleveland Clinic, um, no African Americans. There has been no Black male there since I've been there. And I looked at who we accepted. This was about a year or two ago. And I just said in a faculty meeting, I just said, who's interviewing the students? And um, so it started with that. And do we have any 
Uh, we have a very small African, uh, small black contingency of, of, of professors or assistant professors and that that's interviewing. And I just said, I think we need to have some diversity as we go through the interviewing. Duncan similarly felt a lack of black male physician presence, both at his institution and among national organizations. People look at us and say, well, they just didn't encounter racism because they made it. And the truth is, no, we became successful despite the racism and despite the ongoing racism that we experience every single day. And when you really look at it and you say, okay, let's, how many black male physicians do I know who are doing what I do? And the answer is zero, which is astonishing if you think about it. So it's reaching, AGL needs not only to reach back to see who we can bring in who's already in the pipeline. In other words, we need to go out and grasp people to say, who are OBGYN residents to say, you should try MIGS or, you know, we should look at medical students who should go through OBGYN so they could look at being MIGS surgeons. The problem is that pipeline is really dry. What, what does the pipeline look like? Well, how do we get more folks into the system that, you know, you, you end up with more people present as you filter, go along that pipeline and begin to branch out into different, different areas, different subspecialties? In many ways, it depends on kind of, I think, where you, you know, where you're looking to make an impact. You know, look at a place like Xavier University in, uh, in New Orleans, in Louisiana, right? A, a program that's done a phenomenal job of preparing young, you know, um, African-American students uh, to move forward in careers in medicine. I think you're going to find a, a rather relatively large and, and uh, talented pool of, of, of students coming out of uh, a host of historically black colleges ensure that you have a cohort of students who are prepared to go on and enter the field of medicine. I think mentorship is always a part of that equation. Getting people to conferences, getting them connected to their faculty, I think, you know, their faculty working to get them connected to, you know, folks in the larger field. You know, to me, mentorship, there's often, you know, kind of a natural affinity to having a mentor of your same race or ethnicity. But I think, you know, we often have to think of mentorship more broadly. That may be one of your mentors, but I think as, as one advances in their training, you know, you're going to need multiple mentors. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the young folks coming up, if they don't know that, they should know that. You know, I think that's one way of trying to get people exposed to the field, getting, getting them known in the field. Um, these are relatively small worlds. You know, in many ways, right, somebody vouches for you in some form or fashion. You know, that comes through those connections and those, I think, mentorship connections and, 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 and some of your, your colleagues where someone says, hey, I know this person, they're good. It is challenging because ultimately, you know, the pool is still a small pool of, of folks. And in many regards, you know, you have this talented pool who wants to go into MIGS, who wants to go into your gut, who wants to go into AUK or REI and... And, and some of it is, you know, those folks have to find their way. I think what we want to make sure happens is that people who do have the interest, who have the desire, you know, are, are getting access, you know, and are appropriately qualified are getting access. Stay tuned for our next episode on exploring racism through the lens of Black surgeons. Our interviewees talk about how they overcame racial barriers in the workplace, and they also discuss ways in which we as a healthcare community can support our Black colleagues. Thanks again for joining us on MIGS on the Mic.